Thank you, Anna. Thank you for the invitation. Um, this is a delayed response to an invitation which was issued a long time ago, and I was unable to make it in March last year because of a death in the uh, or a, a serious illness in the department. So I'm, I'm very pleased to have made it at long last. Um, I'm delighted to see you all here, and thank you. Uh, and look at you surrounded by William Morris curtains. This is just tremendous. Um, let, let me not promise too much from this. This is very much work in progress. It's um, what I'm going to present to you is um, a very high level uh, overview synopsis where the detail will be lacking. The detail is lacking for two reasons. One is there isn't time to do it all now. The other is in some cases it doesn't exist and that's partly why I'm here is because I want to get um, some pointers and uh, uh, tips on, on where some of the detail might go. Um, this, the as you can see, the um, the title was 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 kind of uh, tailored to your group, but uh, it's not as if I was doing this artificially. I need to think about these things in my own context, um, which is um, uh, that I am a process ontologist, and I'll explain why and what that means in a minute. And uh, any ontologist, but in particular a revisionary ontologist, such as a process ontologist, more or less is forced to be, has to count for appearances and uh, give uh, equally good or better accounts of the phenomena than, than any other ontologist. So, uh, as always with revisionary uh, metaphysics, one's facing somewhat of an uphill struggle because you can't rely on either the familiarity of tradition or the uh, easy fit with natural language that uh, non-revisionary or descriptive uh, metaphysics tends to be able to rely upon. Um, so um, what I will do is I will take you on a journey which will last perhaps an hour or just, just under, um, explaining to you where, where I'm coming from, why I'm a process ontologist and what kind of implications that has and then try and show or try and link up with your concerns uh, in, in looking at some of the implications of being a process ontologist. Now, I'm not just a process ontologist. I am interested in other things as well. And in particular, the way in which I do metaphysics is, is indicated by the expression factored, and I'll come around to that. So let's get straight in. First of all, let me start with a nice quote from the world's greatest 20th century process ontologist North, after North Whitehead. This, this quote is actually doesn't tell you why he's a process ontologist. In fact, it doesn't tell you why he's anything at all because it's a very high level meta philosophical point. But it is one of the great quotes in his magnum opus, Process and Reality, page seven. In all philosophic theory, there is an ultimate which is actual in virtue of its accidents. It is only then capable of characterization through its accidental embodiment and apart from these accidents, is devoid of actuality. I don't expect you to understand what that's saying and where it's going yet. Uh, I hope by the end you will at least have more of an idea than I did when I first read it. Um, he goes on immediately after this passage to criticise philosophers such as Spinoza, who make God the ultimate, uh, the ultimate uh, when, because God is a, an actual entity, according to Spinoza and according to, to Whitehead. Um, but uh, even aspects of the divine are uh, are actual in virtue of the accidents of the world, according to, to Whitehead. But anyway, I'm not a Whiteheadian. I admire him tremendously, and I do do write and t talk about him. 
but I do so from a, a somewhat detached and critical point of view, which makes me persona non grata among process uh, theologians and various other arch Whiteheadians. So uh, anyway, this is what I'm going to talk about. I'm talking about framework assumptions, where I'm coming from, what I'm going to take for granted and not argue for, um, explain why I think processes are fundamental in ontology, uh, talk about categories and two different kinds of category, which I think is very important. And uh, among those categories, or uh, together with one side, set of those categories, I'm talking, going to talk about what I call factoring or factors and factor families. Then I'm going to go on to uh, explain how causation, powers, and structure fit into a process ontology, as far as I can work it out, which is very basically all I, you know, what I've managed to write down in the last hour and a half. So um, don't expect... Um, you know, uh, Strawsonian density from this. This is going to be uh, a fast helicopter trip. The last bit is the bit I'm most excited about, but that's because I only thought of it yesterday. And um, that's called SI for Process Ontology. You'll, ex you'll see what it's about later on, and I'm, I'm mildly apologetic about the bad pun at the end. So where am I coming from? What kind of a metaphysician am I? Uh, I'm a metaphysician who puts his cards on the table, uh, not necessarily with arguing for them in each case. The particular way I'm coming, place I'm coming from is that I do metaphysics without the linguistic turn. That is, I'm a post-modern metaphysician. Um, I, I regard the linguistic turn as having held back metaphysics and uh, been, in general, a pretty bad thing for all sorts of reasons. So I treat metaphysics the way that uh, Aristotle or Wolf treated it as something for which Language is gives you useful clues, but which does not determine the subject matter or the doctrines to be uh, discerned. Uh, metaphysics, according to me, breaks in down into two parts, uh, which I call ontology and systematics. This actually goes back to, again, ideas of Christian Rolf. Ontology is the formal part. Systematics is what um, was, was called uh, rational cosmology, rational psychology, and rational theology in Wolf. But I don't believe that mind is different from uh, uh, aspects of body, and I don't believe in God. So two-thirds of that disappear as far as I'm concerned, and I'm just left with rational cosmology. But that still leaves a lot of room for investigation. So I, I, in the second part, one deals with what, what uh, also calls regional ontology. Background assumptions that I'm going to, which are operative, but I'm not going to argue for, are firstly, I'm a naturalist, that is, I believe that everything that there is is in space and time, and it's called either causally effective or it's to do with things that are causally effective. So I don't believe in magic, and I don't believe in many worlds. I don't believe in a world of the mind distinct from the world of the body, and I don't believe in platonic universals, and I don't believe in supernatural beings. So it's a kind of no magic position. It's not, I should stress, it's not the same as physicalism. Physicalism is the view, or at least as often understood, is the view that you can say everything you want to in the language of physics. And I think that's absurd. You can't talk about the development of Baroque music or the importance of chewing gum to pavement culture mm -hmm. using the language of physics. So I'm a naturalist, but not a physicalist in the, in the sense of someone who confines their chat or thinks one could in principle find their chat to uh, solving uh, uh, quantum equations. Um, I'm a nominalist, but a relatively lightly held nominalism. I don't believe in abstract entities. That's part of my naturalism, but I might be persuadable that there are Aristotelian universals. 
And finally, the way in which I do my ontological commitment, because I'm not a linguistic term, uh, linguistic analytic philosopher, is that I, uh, connect, I regard the connection between language and the world as going not by a meaning or by a reference, although reference is important, but the principal uh, connection that's important for deciding what you believe in is, is the notion of truth-making, that is, objects which by virtue of existing makes, make propositions true. And I have written about that elsewhere, so I'm not going to go into that. So metaphysics divides, in my view, into ontology, which is dealing with two layers, actually, not just one layer. The elements of being, or the, the, the fundamental categories of things that there are, that's Aristotle's on he on and the factors behind that, and it's the factors I'm going to have to explain to you. This is regarded as formal ontology by Wolf or by, by Husserl, and then systematics deals with the variety of entities. I've stolen the name systematics from biology. Biologists use systematics for people who are not just interested in birds or spiders or the DNA of uh, whatever, but are interested in the whole panoply of life and how it all fits together and so on. So I think that's what an ontologist should be. An ontologist should be a systematist for everything, not just for living things, which of course makes it fun but hard. So that's material or regional ontology in, in Husserl's or, or Wolf's uh, formulation. Why should folk processes be taken as fundamental in, in ontology? In particular, why should they be taken as more fundamental than classical Aristotelian substances, things that uh, persist through time by enduring and changing? Uh, have essences and all that good stuff. First of all, let me say, I don't not believe in substances, I just don't think they're the basic uh, building blocks of reality. So, um, and and this is this is something that I have actually changed my mind over in the last 25 years. 25 years ago, I was kind of Aristotelian substance theorist with, with, with bells and whistles, and now I'm more of a Whiteheadian than I used to be. So I do think processes are fundamental. And there are there are really two main reasons, one of which you can garner from all sorts of corners of science uh, having to do with the importance of events and processes. By the way, I'm not using those two words separately. I, I'm just going to talk about processes. The, the reason that I don't talk about events is, is that it's actually uh, a slightly more tricky thing to talk about for linguistic reasons. So I'm going to talk about processes, but that will cover events. So I'm using the word process to cover anything that's extended in space and time. Um, as, so uh, uh, a process is a concrete spatio-temporal causally effective entity having temporal as well, well as spatial extension and therefore temporal as well as spatial parts. By contrast with continuance which don't have temporal parts at all, which as they say exist as a whole at any time at which they do exist. So one set of arguments comes from science and that you can find that in, in, in Whitehead, you can find it in quite a few um, early 20th century philosophers of science, Carnap and Russell and various other people, who think that the way to make sense of science is to treat the fundamental entities as events slash processes. And I think there's a lot in that. Um, and that's a, a good inclining reason to be in favour of processes. It is not on its own a reason to think that they are the basic things, because you could hold to a kind of dualistic position, which I, was my own position until about 15 years ago, that uh, processes and substances are coeval in the ontological sphere of things. That is, neither has priority over the other, but they do both exist, and they, they, they are involved by involvement. That is, you know, processes 
involve substances and substances are involved in or participate in processes. So when things happen, objects get together and do things like that. So, you know, you, you might have a dance and the objects involved are the people and the processes are the twirling around and bowing and, tw you know, doing things with your feet. So those two things, obviously, in common sense terms, are involved. But when push comes to shove and one asks what, are, what is at the fundamental level of, of entities, my, my vote goes to processes for a somewhat arcane reason, but a reason which I think is uh, very compelling. Uh, and it connects with the idea that you make your ontological commitments by deciding what the truth makers are for very important propositions. So truth making is the view that in certain cases, in the cases of relatively simple atomic sentences, they are true because something exists. This, this idea comes out of Russell, it comes out of Wittgenstein, it comes from various sources. Actually, you can find it in Aristotle as well in metaphysics. Um, but um, in, in the case, uh, the cases that I'm interested in, I'm interested in existential propositions, ones which are actually not even well formed according to people like Wittgenstein and, and Frege. Singular existential propositions are true because the object that is said to exist does exist. You know, it's, it's the level at which the correspondence theory is correct. Uh, John exists is true because of John. John exists and that makes it true. Or rather, John makes it true that John exists. So a truth maker is an object which by existing makes it true that something is true. Um, so John, by existing, makes it true that John exists. So it's trivial, if you like, that John is the truth maker for John exists. Okay. And that's the basic form of the truth making connection for any true existential proposition, singular. For general propositions, we want to deal with that separately. So I'll leave those on one side. But here is the problem. There are two kinds of existence statements as they apply to things in space and time, particularly things like tables and people and, and chairs and trees. Because we don't just say that things exist, we say they exist at a certain time. We can, as it were, step back from time and treat their existence as something omnitemporal or transtemporal or whatever you want to say. But there is still a sense in which we want to say, for instance, that Napoleon existed in 1821 but did not exist in 1825 because he died in the meantime. Or that uh, Socrates was not alive in 500 BC but was alive in and name some date at which he was alive. Okay. So things exist at sometimes. Things like you and me exist at sometimes and don't exist at others. And we want to know in virtue of what? What are the truth makers for those true propositions? Assuming they have truth makers. And in this case, I think it's highly plausible that they do. I do not subscribe to the belief that all true propositions have truth makers. The view that David Armstrong calls truth maker maximalism. I think that leads to unholy problems and do, to do with negative existentials and lots of other things. But for existential propositions, we want to know why, in virtue of what objects, uh, certain propositions are true. So let's take the proposition, Napoleon existed in 1821. In virtue of what is that true? What is it that exists, that by existing makes that true? Well, the first and plausible answer is, well, Napoleon. Who else? Right? Who else could it be? What else could it be than Napoleon? Um, and th that answer looks fine at first blush. But here is a reason why it's not fine. The, the, the nature of truth-making is that, uh, or at least as standardly understood by those who work in that genre, is that 
the existence of a truth maker doesn't just happen to make the truth true, it necessitates its truth. That is, necessarily, if this object exists, then that proposition is true. Now, the the, the truth-making relation between Napoleon and one existential proposition is okay by that light. Necessarily, if uh, Napoleon exists, then it's true that he does exist. I mean, that's just an instance of, you know, uh, necessarily if P then P. So, Napoleon is truth-maker for the bold existential proposition, Napoleon exists. But here is why he isn't the, the, the truth-maker for the temporal existential proposition. Napoleon exists or existed in 1821. And the reason is, Napoleon does not necessitate, Napoleon per se, the man, the guy, does not necessitate that he exists in 1821. Why? Because he could have been killed earlier on. Okay, It is contingent that Napoleon is alive in 1821. He might have died on the battlefield of Waterloo, for example, by a stray bullet or because he tripped over and hit his head on a rock or because he committed suicide after losing the battle. Whatever. It is not necessary that because Napoleon exists, the proposition Napoleon exists in 1821 is true. After all, what makes the difference between that Napoleon exists in 1821 and Napoleon exists in 1921, which of course is false. Uh, if he didn't, he didn't have to exist in 1921, and he certainly didn't. He didn't have to exist in 1821, but he did. So is there anything which, by existing, forces the proposition Napoleon existed in 1821 to be true? And the view I have is that yes, there is. And he, that it's not a man like Napoleon. It is a segment of, or some segments of, a collection of processes which sustain Napoleon alive in 1821. I call them his vital processes. Okay, So the, it, the view is that objects which exist in time and exist contingently at a time, exist contingently at that time because there are processes going on at that time in virtue of which that thing exists. And furthermore, because processes are categorically distinct from and modally different in their behavior from substances, a process, when it exists at a certain time, does so of necessity, when it exists at that time. So it, it is essential to a process taking place in 1821 that it, it takes place in 20, 1821. So certain forms of essentialism hold for process, in particular merilogical essentialism and locational essentialism, which do not hold for you, the likes of you and me. So there is a there is a, a, a necessitating relation between certain processes and Napoleon's existence in 1821, because he's constituted in certain sense, to be made clear, by those processes. And therefore, these processes, these vital processes, or their segments in 1821, make it true that Napoleon existed in 1821, but they aren't Napoleon. But they have to be there in order for him to exist in time. And for him to exist at all is for him to exist at some time. Therefore, you've got to have vital processes in order for Napoleon to exist at all. So it's two steps from the vital processes exist to Napoleon exists at such and such a time. Then you existentially generalize Napoleon exists at some time. And because he's the kind of entity that he is, he exists only if he exists at some time. So you get from the existence of the vital processes to the true proposition Napoleon exists, but it's not 
with Napoleon at the bottom of the pile. It's with those vital processes at the bottom of the pile. Okay, let me explain now why I'm not a Whiteheadian, despite the fact that I've kind of showered a bit of praise in his direction as a process philosopher. Um, Napoleon, Napoleon, Whitehead's uh, process philosophy is uh, very easily misunderstood. It's very hard to understand it at all, but if you have understood it, you're likely to misunderstand it. And one of the reasons is that he uses the word process in two incompatible ways. And hardly anyone has picked up on this. Even very good Whitehead scholars such as Dorothy Emmett, who was a student of his in Harvard, did not pick up on this. Process can mean just the usual kind of tissue of things going on, um, you know, like uh, the process of growing of a tree. So something that's extended in space and time. But in, in the most important sense that Whitehead uses, it doesn't mean that at all. It means that whereby individual events come to be. And what, what Whitehead calls individual events, he actually calls them actual occasions. He, you know, invents his own terminology for everything in that book. He calls them actual occasions. He doesn't call them events. And the reason he doesn't do that is that up until about 18, uh, sorry, 1925, Whitehead thought that the fundamental things in the world were spatiotemporally extended events, which had parts. In fact, they had parts without end. They were gunky. But from 1825 or so onwards, he decided, for reasons which I think are not good, but to do with a kind of xenotype argument about uh, becoming, that events, the ultimate events, have to be atomic. They cannot have proper parts. He says, page 8 or page 9, the creatures are atomic. By the creatures, he means the contingently existing things. Uh, but, and this is an interesting side effect of this, he thinks that the spatiotemporal volume that uh, uh, an atomic event occupies is not atomic. In other words, there is a mismatch between the volume that a, an event enjoys, as Whitehead says, and how many parts it has. It has no part other than itself, so it's atomic, but it occupies an extended region. But Whitehead tells an incredibly long story, several hundred pages, about how it is that events get to be the way they are. It's very involved. And it, in particular, it, 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 it involves a, a kind of relation, or rather two kinds of relations, which Whitehead calls prehensions, which is part of what I don't like about Whitehead, which is his co-opting of psychological terminology for things that aren't psychological. But this is part and parcel of his view that everything in the world is a sort of a creature, sort of a creature with experience. Everything in the world consists of experience, or is, is experiential. So this table is a huge colony or community or nexus, as Whitehead would say, of things having experiences. They're not having very interesting experiences because they're atoms or actually at the bottom they're events. But they're still having experiences. So he's a panpsychist because the fundamental uh, principles of intentionality and experience apply to everything at the bottom layer of reality. And I think that's just cooking. I mean, I just think panpsychism, I know Galen Strawson thinks it's true, but I think Galen is barking, and I've said so in print, but in polite terms. Okay, so, and, and, and you know, panpsychism is one of those things that one thought at one time was dead and buried and would never arise again, like presentism, and here it is, you know, everyone's becoming one. So, you know, there is regress as well as progress in metaphysics. The other thing I don't like about Whitehead, apart from his use of you know psychological terminology, the process is the, the internal, what he calls genetic division 
of an entity. Well, a genetic, and yet he says, he talks about it using temporal terminology the whole time, first this, then that. And then he says, but it doesn't occur in real time. And then he doesn't say, well, what does it occur in? It's just a kind of an advancement which is not temporal. And as far as I'm concerned, that's like saying a thing is spread out but not in, not in space. It just doesn't mean anything. And the other thing is, because of his uh, distinction between the non-partedness of events and the partedness of the regions they occupy, he actually reverts to something that he himself had previously criticised, which is what he called the bifurcation of nature. Because you get space-time being spread out and continuous, and you get the occupants of space-time being discrete and, and atomic. So you, you've got to have some way of bridging the gap, and, and I don't think Whitehead does that securely. So that's why I'm not a Whiteheadian. So that's put me out of favour with about half of the southern states of the USA. So how to understand what comes on after now? You don't have to believe me that processes are fundamental. I would like you to, but I, you don't have to. Because it would take me longer anyway to persuade you. So the whole point of this talk is, okay, play along with me, as Shakespeare says, entertain conjecture, okay, that processes are fundamental. If processes are fundamental, what does that mean for the sort of things that you are talking about in this in this group? Powers, structures, causality, and, and, and Uncle Tom substance and all. Okay, so all the things that you love. Uh, what kind of an effect will being a process ontologist have on chat about those or on thought about those? And that's what I'm trying to explore. And if, if this is rudimentary and open-ended and full of holes, yeah, that's right. It's hard because, you know, I haven't got my head around all of this. And some of this takes a long, long time to think your way through. Okay, so now let's walk on to categories because there's another quote I could have given by, by uh, Whitehead, which is saying that philosophy will never recover its status until we all go back to doing category theory um, in, in the metaphysical, not the mathematical sense. Now, for a long, long time, I fretted about whether categories divide the world or not. And the reason is, if you look at the literature and the history of category theory from Aristotle to Whitehead, you'll find some people saying they, they divide things in reality, You'll get other people saying they divide concepts and other people saying they divide words. And then you get theories about what, you know, which one tells you which one goes. And you get some medieval philosophers like John of St. Thomas saying they divide all three and there's nice harmony between all three levels, which is fine as a piece of Aristotle scholarship, for example. Is it fine as a piece of modern metaphysics? And my answer is, no, I'm not sure it is. And the reason is because I'm not a linguistic turner and I think there are discrepancies between the way the world divides up and the way language divides things up. So, or at least I want to leave that impossible that that, that is the case. So are, are categories Aristotelian, do they divide data at the joints? Assuming all goes well, of course, we're talking about the one true correct final category theory here, not the one we're stumbling through at the moment. Uh, or do they, as Kant would think, simply structure our thought about things. In other words, are they not div divisive of things as they are themselves, but are they structure and structuring our thoughts, which we kind of throw at the mush out there, or the thing on itself, as, as Kant calls it, and work it up into a position where we're able to say things about it, know things about it. In other words, do categories structure our experience, or do they structure reality? And the answer I came to after thinking about this for 30 years was both. 
It's not that the same categories do it, it's that there are some categories that if all goes well structure reality or tell you what kind of things the world comes in. Those are the Aristotelian style categories. So you could say substance, relation, quality, quantity and the good things from the categories in the metaphysics. They purport to be categories that divide nature in its own joints. But if you go and look at Kant's categories, you'll find things like negation, modality, complementarity, reciprocity, all sorts of things that don't seem to be defining uh, disjunction. You've got disjunction, you've got necessity, you've got problematicity, and so on. And Kant is quite open about this. He derives the categories not from science or investigating the world, but from looking at the way in which we judge about things and looking at ana analyzing, anatomizing the forms of judgment in logic in a very traditional, high-bound, architectonic way. You can say all the usual swear words about Kant you like. But they are doing a different kind of job, one which is apt to Kant's version of transcendental idealism because he don't think the world is structured in itself, or at least if it is, we have the foggiest idea how. Now, I actually think that some categories are Kantian in that regard. Why are there such categories? Answer, because we are thick. Because we are not God and we don't see the world as it is in itself, we need to use concepts to, that help us to structure our thought about reality, taking account of the fact that we are finite and fallible and all that stuff. For example, take negation. Why do we have negation, which is a category according to Kant? Answer, because we don't know everything. If I knew everything, I would know that, you know, I would need negation. Because if you say, where is John? I wouldn't need to say, oh, I don't know, but he's not in this room. I would say he's in Barcelona or he's in Brest-Litovsk or he's in Boston. Okay. Whichever was the correct answer. I wouldn't need to say or if I were omniscient because I'd know what the correct answer was. So or and not are there because we are partly ignorant. Now, or and not are two of the logical constants. And one of the, one of, one of the really true great insights of Wittgenstein in the Tractatus was the logical constants do not represent. They don't stand for anything in the world. There isn't allness out there, or allness, or knownness, or andness, or notness. They, they are there to structure our thoughts so that we can get to say true and false things despite the fact that we don't know the truth value of every atomic proposition. That's what they're there for. They're covering our embarrassment. And I think there's a whole lot of other categories that do that. Existence, the verb, does that as well. There's not anything in the world called existence. Kant's right about that. Brentano's right about that. Hume's right about that. But we use ex the existential word to say that there's a difference between things that we thought about that really are out there and those that aren't. It's the object that's the truth maker, but the verb exists helps us to express a true judgment about it. So existence is an auxiliary category, and I call all these Kantian categories auxiliary. And there's a whole bunch of others. An important one that I will mention later on is uh, abstraction. I mean, abstraction isn't a quantity, it's what I call a cognitive operation. And it's probably the most important one. It's certainly very important. It'll come in later on. Now, let's concentrate on the ontic side, the ones, the, the Aristotelian or ontic categories. Uh, I understand categories in a very, very traditional way. They give you, if you like, the top level class of things, divided as they are, inherently divided in nature. And, you know, whichever particular table of categories you like, whether it's Aristotle's or Kant, not Kant, because he's, he's a Kantian, but somebody else who thinks, well, 
you know, you've got this kind of thing. Frege, for instance, there are objects and there are functions. That's it, folks. What's an, ob what's, what, what's an object? It's anything that's not a function. Okay. What's a function? It's something that's unsaturated. What's something that's unsaturated? Well, something sort of incomplete. What's incomplete? Well, it's like a function. Okay, that's, that's Frege's ontology. Okay. It's driven by the linguistic term. You think the linguistic term is good? Okay, fine. Um, so, the, the, taken, the most popular, if you like, the most popular folk ontology among analytic ontologists these days is probably the four category ontology. Things, properties, relations, and states of affairs. That's what, what Armstrong thinks there are. Things, properties, relations, and states of affairs. Some people add possible worlds, but you could treat those as maximally consistent states of affairs, so they are reducible, okay, in something like that. Where does that, where does that come from? Guess where? It comes from nouns, adjectives, verbs, and sentences. That's linguistic turning too. It's not linguistic turning at the, at the one-to-one -one level, but it's certainly linguistic turning at the categorial level. One time David Armstrong nearly swore at me was when I said that was where he got his categories from. He was not happy with that. Um, as far as I understand it, that four-category ontology first came out uh, in some of the writings of Wilhelm Wundt. But since Wundt wrote enough books to fill this room, I have not found it, nor do I intend to spend the rest of my life searching. I'm told that, and I, uh, you know, if anybody knows better, I'd be happy to find the, the quotation. Now, supposing there is more than one ontic category, some people think there is only one. Keith Campbell, for instance, thinks that there's only tropes and nothing else. Okay, So does D.C. Williams that he got that idea from. But let's suppose, and I think you can give good arguments for saying, well, at least there are tropes and substances, for example. There are tropes and the concrete things that they depend on. Things that don't depend on things are different from things that do depend on things. Tropes depend, substances don't. So there is at least a two-category ontology. And we haven't started talking about space and time and anything else like that. So let's suppose there are two, two or more categories in our ontology. It doesn't matter what they are, as long as there's more than one of them. What distinguishes them? What differentiates them? Well, one answer is, uh, we don't know. They're just different. That's the brute answer is, they are just damn well different. Okay. Now that answer is, it may be correct, but it's unsatisfying, not just because it stops you from doing ontology a bit earlier than you might want to, but because historically we have found we can say quite a lot about what distinguishes accidents from substances, for example. Namely, for instance, that accidents... Um, are dependent on substances, and substances are not dependent on anything. Okay, That accidents are inhere in substances, but substances don't inhere in anything. So we, we can keep the chat going. And one of the, one of the um, reasons that I like factors is that factors are what you get to when you keep the chat going, and you keep it going as, until you hit bedrock. And bedrock, effectively, in this case, is when you can't say anything more that you haven't said already, when when to describe the nature of the differentia, differentiating the categories, uh, the things in the categories effectively, you you in trying to explicate them or define them, you use the things themselves. In other words, you get lots of intervolved circular type definitions. You get a kind of little closed island of concepts, which all of which seem to run back on themselves. Uh, that happens to the concept of cause, for example, that cause is that which produces an effect, and effect is that which is produced by a cause, and producing is the relation between cause and effect. 
I mean, you can actually find something like that in the Oxford English Dictionary. You can find a very tight circle which shows that cause is probably best treated as indefinable. Okay. So the idea is that we can try and trace the differences among ontic categories down to features, factors, properties, or whatever you want to call them, in virtue of which they're different. Okay. Now, this has been done before. Not often, but it has been done before. Sometimes philosophers have said that the basic kinds of entity are defined as different from one another in virtue of certain other factors. We might call them formal properties or something like that, but I don't really care what you call them. I call them factors because I like the word and because it's not much used elsewhere. So here is probably the first factor of ontology in the history of uh, Western philosophy. It's Empedocles four elements. The elements give you the categorization of things and their mixtures, of course, gives you things like tables and chairs and people. But the elements are the way they are, not just brutally, but because of two families of factors, the temperature factor and the humidity factor. Okay, so you've got basic meteorology governing what there is, hot, cold versus wet, dry. And the combinations give you air, water, fire and earth. So the factors are hot and cold, wet and dry. Now, there cannot be anything that's wet or dry. Sorry, there cannot be wetness without something that's wet. There cannot be heat without something that's hot. Wet, dry, hot and cold are not things that can exist on their own. They are actual in virtue of their accidents. In other words, the things that happen to exist that have them. Does that sound familiar? That's, that's Whitehead. Here's another example. We, you might think that Aristotle, with his emphasis on categories, hadn't got a factored ontology. Well, two levels at which he does. Firstly, the division of things into universal, particular, dependent and independent. You've got the dependence factor, okay, differentiating individual accidents from individual substances and properties from kinds. And you've got the predicability factor, things said of, things not said of, something. Okay. And again, it's, you know, it's a two by two, and that gives you four fundamental kinds of things. Now, I know Aristotle goes on then to differentiate properties and tropes, the things not on the left-hand side, into seven different subcategories. And you might say, well, that's just done by thinking hard and looking at Greek. But actually, if you look hard, you can probably find factoring there as well. And here is one sketch as to where the factors come from. And I didn't need to think this up because I just pulled it out of Brentano's doctoral dissertation, which is called, what is it called? Uh, on the several senses of being in Aristotle. From the Manifachen Bedeutung des nach Aristoteles. And what Brentano does is, against the criticisms of Mill and Kant, who said that Aristotle just threw the categories out, okay, and it's a chaos and it's rubbish. He says, actually, the boy had a scheme and reasons for doing things the way he did. And this is the scheme. And you'll notice it's not deeply linguistically driven. It's based on differentiating factors. So is an entity dependent or independent? If it's dependent, it's an accident. If it's independent, it's a substance. Is it, does it have reference to something else? If so, it's a relation. If it doesn't, it's a, what he calls an affection. Uh, and so on. So you actually get the major eight categories of Aristotle by factoring. Notice that it's it's not just a two by two or something like that. It's a little more structured than that. But at each stage at which the tree divides, it's formal factors that differentiate between the things on the different, um, 
the different branches. So that's pretty cool, I think. I mean, and, and you know, it's good, what should we say, um, forensic scholarship by Brentano. And, you know, I think Brentano is a great Aristotle scholar, and most Aristotle scholars alive now probably would disagree with that. Persons in this room may be accepted. The third, and in my, my view, most um, ambitious and um, accomplished factoring ontologist is a Cracovian called Roman Ingarden, who was a student of um, Husserl in Göttingen before the First World War, disagreed with Husserl's turn to idealism, and wrote a complete metaphysics to prove that Husserl was wrong about the relationship between mind and the external world. And his, this three-volume, three or four, three-volume, but still incomplete metaphysics is called the controversy over the existence of the world, in Polish. Written during the war, published after it. And in this, Ingarden, in the first part, comes up with a factored ontology. The ontology is to define the categories of things that there are. But he doesn't just say, oh, we've got states of affairs, oh, we've got substances, oh, we've got past things. He, he anatomizes what there is into what he calls existential moments. And these existential moments are just what I call factors. They are the things that determine what, in combination, what kind of thing a kind of thing is. So there are the seven families that Ingarden uses, and there is what he gets out of them. You won't be able to see the diagram very closely. Um, that, that was a diagram invented by me in the 1970s. It's been published since by Ingvar Johansson. We call it the Lacrima Day. Uh, <laughs> or the teardrop but because it's got God at the top of course the pointy bit is God the absolute the real absolute the, the little sort of signs there represent the combinations of factors from various families now there are lots of families there are seven families one with three the rest with two well three or four one, the rest with two and they're not all com consistent in combination but when you put them all together the consistent combinations give you I think 16 different classes these are these regions here and you get events, processes, states, states of affairs, uh, absolute properties, ideal things like mathematical objects. And you get you and me as well. So we're in there. Okay. Now, I don't care whether it's true or not. What I care about is that it's a good method for doing metaphysics. Okay. And it, what he ends up with is rapidly traditional. You know, it's Thomas Aquinas and the Pope. There's nothing really new about it. It's not revisionary metaphysics. It's a very rich ontology, but it's still a very traditional ontology, so that the logicians in, War, in, in Warsaw and Revolt regarded Ingarden as a scholastic, because his views were so similar to those of certain medievals. But I don't care. It's The point is, that's the method he uses. Now, here are where my relational families come from. My families are not, fact, not digital. Well, perhaps I should go back. The reason I call this discrete factored ontology is that each family comes in two or three or four different members and they combine discreetly. So you add that together with that and you see whether it's compatible and if it is, you can see what else you can add. And so you get, you get a digital, uh, matrix of possible combinations and it's finite because all of the families are finite. Okay. Whereas I, after long, long thought about this, which I can talk about another time, I come to the view that it's not values, it's not separate values that really define the families, it's relations. 
the relation, for instance, the distinction between dependent and independent turns on the relation of dependence. That is, some things are dependent on others. Now, they may themselves have things dependent on them, and that does not show up if you just say it's dependent. So you want to know whether there is dependence of second order. You want to know whether there is mutual dependence and whether the things that are mutually dependent then turn out as a whole not to be dependent. So, I mean, that's dear to me because that gives what's called trope bundle theory, okay, which I'm very happy with. Um, so I think that the basic factoring families are, oh, I've lost it. Come on, baby. There we are. Are uh, relations or relational. And I currently think that there are one, two, three, four, five, six fundamental families. I changed my mind on this. A few years ago, we thought there were 14, then it went down to 11, then 10, then back up to 11, then down to 7, then down to 6. And I, I can't make up my mind. About five of them are pretty constant as far as I'm concerned. They concern number, difference between one and many. Um, part and whole, which of course I'm very fond of. Dependence, which I've already talked about a lot. Location, so how things get to be in space, time, space and time, or one or the other. Or indeed in locations which aren't necessarily spatial temporal, like um, uh, H4 on the chessboard, um, things like that. Quantity, that's the one I'm probably least sure about, but um, I, I think if you want to think about proportions and mixtures and things like that, you probably need quantity, and it isn't just down to number for all sorts of reasons. And finally, most importantly for us probably today, determination, which is my word for causation and anything else like it, but I can't think of anything for the moment. Okay, But if you, for instance, if you were a, uh, let's say... If you're an agent causation person who believed that freedom of the will is exercised from you, not from events, then you would have two modes of determination. You'd have event to event determination, which is standard human causation with some necessity built in. Uh, and you'd have person to event causation, which would be me doing something or me bringing something about. So determination is anything which fixes that something happens or something is the case. And that would include causation probably as its most Possibly it's only, most important, possibly it's only um, member. So, now, thinking back then, we started with process ontology. We looked at um, method in, in, in metaphysics and how to differentiate the categories. That led us on to factors. And then the question is, okay, supposing you're a process ontologist, where does that leave you in questions like what causation is, what the powers are, and what structure is? Okay. And anything else that you happen to be interested in, because you can bet that not everything is going to be sayable in the same way if you're a process ontologist at the fundamental basic level. So let's talk about causation, because that's the easy one. FPO is a factored process ontology. I have to be very careful how I pronounce that, because there's an extremely nasty right-wing party in Austria called the FPO, with two dots over the O, which is sort of crypto-fascist party in Austria. So even just seeing that makes me shudder a little bit. But I'll, I'll try, try and think of some of that acronym. Um, so causation or, relation, or determination is that relational factor or species, I'm not sure, of relational factor, in virtue of which one process partly or wholly determines that another process occurs. Not necessarily what that process is, but that it occurs. And partially, partly or wholly covers two distinct things. One is partial versus total cause, which is very familiar from the literature on causation. 
um, you know, when I switch the light on, my flipping the switch is not the total cause of the light going on. There's got to be a bulb, a circuit that's going and power through the lines and all that good stuff. But it's the trigger, obviously. Everything else being in place, tick, that's what switches the light on. Um, and the, the other reason that I'm not going to stick with just one species necessarily of determination is that I want to leave room for uh, indeterministic or probabilistic varieties of causation or varieties of something akin to causation, inclining without causally necessitating, as you might require, for example, in uh, statistical mechanics or in quantum theory. So I'm leaving it open whether there is probabilistic inclination. I'm inclined to think there is. But that, so, so that's that. Now, causation in a, in a factor process ontology, in a process ontology, doesn't have to be deterministic. Okay. There can be things that just damn well happen. They, they are spontaneous events. It, there, nothing in the definition of causation implies that there is a law of universal causality. All it says is, when causation happens, this is what it is. It doesn't say, whenever anything happens, it has to be caused to happen by something else. Some things just happen. At least that's my view. And I think that's backed up by quantum theory. Okay. Um, and so spontaneous processes or spontaneous happenings are possible. So ca causation in that sense is, I think, the least problematic of the carryovers from standard type uh, ontology to uh, process ontology, because basically since Hume, that's the way it's gone. And if you, if you look at um, uh, disquisitions on causation by late 19th, early 20th century scientists like Mach or Reichenbach and various other people, I think it's fairly clear that the, the standard, the, uh, the orthodox view is that causation is a process type or an event to event type thing. Whatever it is, whatever kind of relation it is, that needs to be sorted. Powers have given me a lot more trouble over the years. In fact, I've spent a lot of the time with my head under the blanket, not even trying to think about powers because I, I don't know what to think. Uh, now I know slightly less what I don't think because um, powers as standardly employed in the literature are properties or dispositions of continuance, that is, things that persist through time uh, without temporal parts. Um, and obviously, if I'm a process ontologist, I cannot believe that that's the basic layer. So I have to treat the powers of continuance as in some way derivative from something else. And so there has to be something, if there are powers in nature of continuance, then they have to be derivative from something in processes or to do with processes in virtue of which there are powers and things. So, you know, the usual standard examples that the uh, the ball has the power to break the window if you throw it hard enough towards it. What does that consist in? Well, and then you plug in your favorite story about dispositions or categorical bases or whatever. But that still has to be translated, as far as I'm concerned, into stories about processes actual or possible. Okay, and the possible bit is the one that gives me the, the stomachache because I'm not sure how to deal with potentialities. Um, so if, if the idea of uh, potential has application in the unfolding of processes as they take place in the real world, then they are probably going to be like things to do with both ends of this causation thing in, in Whitehead, which Whitehead, the opposite of cause, so the converse of causation is something that Whitehead calls physical prehension. He doesn't like the C word. I don't quite know why he, he, he dislikes it and uses it very little indeed, even though he's talking about causation the whole time. 
And so a number of open questions, and these are lacunae in my account, which is why I said there are lacunae. One is, what are what is the status of powers that are sitting there waiting to be activated? You know, the ball is sitting there saying, I could break a window. You know, just go for it. Throw me, throw me, go on, throw me. Well, of course, it doesn't do that, but it has the power to do that. And then there is a story about, well, or there are stories of different different stories depending on whether you think that dispositions require categorical bases or whether you think that all properties are dispositional. There is then a story about what that consists in. And what I would say is, since I don't know which one of those accounts is correct, I would have to somehow give a process account which matches up to the one that turns out to be right. Or maybe they're all right in different cases, and in some cases one works and in another case another works. One of the important things that I think a theory of contingency and the realization of powers has to deal with is, is uh, what I call coincidence. Coincidence is what happens when two things that were not causally related do come into causal contact. So you have causal chains which are disconnected or feebly connected, and then by virtue of accidents of time and place, they become interwoven. Classical example is the guy, well, it's not a classical example, it's a new example. It's not very nice, actually. You know when the helicopter crashed in uh, London the other week, hit the building and, and fell out of the sky, there was some poor guy walking along the street underneath and he was killed by debris from the falling helicopter. That's a coincidence. He was in the wrong, in this case, the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, there was nothing in his life up to that point that determined that he was going to be killed on his way to work. Okay. But he was. That's a coincidence. Coincidence is spatiotemporal uh, merging of causal chains and they're becoming, uh, becoming not one causal chain, but intervolved causal chains. And I think coincidence is an incredibly important and underrated factor in explaining not only contingency, but also free will. But that's another story. Okay. So that's something which needs more work. I'm just saying I need to think more about that. Other people may have done stuff on that. Um, one would need to explain the contingency attaching to things like you and me, as well as things like processes. The problem with processes and contingency is if you take a process as a whole, then its parts are necessarily parts of it, if it exists. They're essential parts, as is its location. So it looks as though there's much less room for contingency in the case of processes. Um, but... Firstly, processes don't have to occur. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But they are not necessitated to do so ab, uh, ab ovo. Um, sometimes they're triggered into uh, occurring by causes. Sometimes they happen spontaneously. But they aren't of themselves bound to occur. And secondly, uh, it may be that although a whole process may have its parts, essentially, part of a process does not as that partial process of what is then going to go on does not have to continue in the way in which it does. So it may be that the process is, as it were, shunted into a different way of being completed by something else going on, such as a coincidence. So this guy's particular walk to work was shunted into basically death by a helicopter happen happening to hit a building above him as he was walking below it. Okay, Kind of nightmare for all commuters, I guess. Not, not, hey, no, I'm sorry, it's not a nice example, but it is a very, very clear case and tragic case of, of mere coincidence. To understand how this is going to work, we need to know the relationship between continuance and processes. And 
my view on this is, and I didn't really put processes at the bottom until I had a settled view on this, is that continuants are not basic because they are invariants of a certain kind. Uh, you might call them abstractive, but they're not abstract. They are invariants under an equivalence relation, and when you have an equivalence relation, you can do an abstraction on that. But uh, that doesn't make them abstract because they are actually still causally effective and in space. Um, the, 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 the equivalence relation is gen identity. That's the name for it. It doesn't tell you what it is. It just tells it, here's the name for the equivalence relation. It goes back to Kurt Levine, a psychologist in the 20s, and was uh, stolen by Carmack. Uh, it's a great name. It's not the same as identity. It's gen identity. Gen identity pertains to the vital processes of a continuant, that is, those in virtue of which it, it exists and continues to exist, and gen identity is specified to be an equivalence relation. It is partly causal. You know, some, some of the things that happen in an object and sustain it happen because earlier things happen in the object and cause those later things. So my, my present heartbeat is in part caused by my previous heartbeat dying down. Okay, on that setting off a new wave of electrical activity in the pericardium and so on. So heartbeat's a very, very interesting thing. Um, so vital processes can cause later vital processes which can help to keep the thing going. So that's why, you know, breathing continuously is a good idea. Uh, eating frequently is a good idea and, and sleeping frequently is a good idea because these are all processes which help to sustain you by making sure that succeeding processes are ones which actually do sustain you and don't say, oh, I'm giving up. Okay. Uh, not all causation is gen-identical like that. Example, an explosion. If you take a bomb and you uh, trigger it, the, the, the explosion caused by rapidly expanding gases which pulls the, the bomb apart is a dissipative event which is causally beautifully uh, explicable, but it does not sustain the poor old bomb in existence, quite the contrary. So it's great, it's great causal stuff, but it's very bad for gen identity. So, you know, be careful what you eat. Um, Whitehead has words for the kind of relationship that needs to obtain among events or processes in order for them to sustain objects. His, his view of objects is actually, I believe, very much the same as mine, or rather, mine is the same as his. And it's only after working it out for myself that I then figured that Whitehead had got there 80 years earlier. So, do it. Okay. But he calls it social order or personal order. Now, one of the things about... Uh, Invariance is that they, they have their own kinds of, of, of properties. Anybody who's done philosophy of mathematics and abstraction theory, a la Frege or a la Crispin Wright, knows that. Um, and those, these properties are not quite the same as, as the ones that you started with. So, for instance, I am as heavy as, let's say, Valdi, but my weight isn't as heavy as Valdi's. My weight is the same as Valdi's. So um, there is an adjustment to the meaning as you move from the invariant to the um, to, to, to the properties of the invariant. And that explains, for instance, why we need a temporal index in talking about, for instance, how heavy I am today as distinct from how heavy I was yesterday, because my weight is not an invariant property of me, but my being alive is, for example. Um, so how do we get powers and dispositions for a continuance? Well, they have to be derivative out of the constitutive processes. Um, I think one needs a story about how unactivated 
potentials hang around waiting to be activated saying go on trigger me um, we have to know what activation means that I think is something that process process uh, ontologists can do lying down that's not hard that's what process is there for the interesting question from a kind of metaphysical point of view is why it is that the modal identity conditions of continuance are so much more flexible than those of their constitutive processes why it is that you know I could be here today and in London tomorrow whereas the processes which sustain me here now could not be in London today or tomorrow okay so that's an interesting one and again that's that's an indication of an unsolved problem Structure is the one that I find hardest to deal with. In, I mean, partly because structure is so formal that you would expect, well, you've got structure in continuance or among continuance, and you've got structure among processes too. Processes have structure. If you don't believe me, just look at the uh, series of events which triggers some catastrophic event. Look at what starts an avalanche in motion. Look at how a storm develops. Look at how the space shuttle Challenger blew up. There is a structure to the sequence of events, which is described in accident reports and meteorological eyewitnesses accounts and so on. Okay, so there are structures involved, but there are also structures of the continuance involved. So one needs to actually have a many-layered account of the structure. But the one thing I will say is that structure is not just, despite some of my more keen meriological analytic, younger analytic colleagues, um, analytic metaphysics isn't just about part and whole it's about all the factor families plus the things that, that uh, exemplify them so people who say for instance that emergence is about holes having properties their parts don't have are just being one dimensional about constitution that's just a too feeble way of accounting for the constitution of, of objects just looking at part whole structures so there are lots of other factorial relations which enter into the question whether something is emergent or not, ontologically speaking. Okay. Um, quite finally, structuralism, which is a bit of a, uh, what should I say, uh, it, it's a bit of a bête noire for me. It's uh, something I'm not particularly keen on. It's partly through having rubbed um, sh either shoulders or structures with Stephen French for many years in, in Leeds. Stephen thinks it's relations all the way down and there are no terms and I literally cannot make sense of that how you can have relations without things to relate it obviously you can have relations among relations but I don't understand how it's not well founded and you don't get down to things that aren't relations in the end so I just don't can't figure out how that works should processes be, have a structural account you bet why because you want to give structural accounts of as much as you can okay are they familiar no not very familiar I gave some examples but they are fairly fairly rare examples why why do people believe in structuralism as a philosophy of science thing well they believe in it following um, uh, oh god forgot his name John Worrell at LSE as a bulwark against uh, Larry Loudon's pessimistic meta induction in science you know oh well scientific revolution preserves structure it doesn't preserve content yeah, but sometimes structure isn't preserved either, and sometimes content is preserved. For example, content is preserved in the passage from pre-Darwinian pre to post-Darwinian classification theory, um, but the structure is as to how uh, taxa in biology are differentiated and why they are not standard gets a whole new explanation. But Darwin didn't come along and say, you've got to throw all your classifications out the window. St structure was preserved. 
um, that some of the content, why it's the way it is, was not preserved. We've got an evolutionary explanation, not one because God wanted it that way. It wasn't a Jesus wanted explanation. Okay, now this is the last one. This is a bit I'm, I'm personally quite quite keen on just because it's new. SI stands for Sistema International. It's the international system of weights, measures, and quantities as regulated by a regulatory body run by the, well, it is called the Sistema International. It's a bunch of scientists sitting in committees deciding what's basic. Uh, and here is something that I'm pleased to say none of them has thought of yet, which is that if you're going to do process ontology, you better make your uh, fundamental units match up to that. One of the fundamental units in the SI system is one that's been there since the beginning, is mass. Mass is very important. You know, it's at the center of standard mechanics and an awful lot else. And it was, you know, what, what Newton and Einstein and lots of good scientists have written about. But if mass is a property of bodies and bodies are continuance and continuance aren't basic, then mass can't be one of the basic units or mass cannot be one of the basic quantities. It must be, in some sense, a derivative quantity. Now, you might say, ah, so much the worse for process ontology. But that's being a little too quietistic or a little too quick. What you might say is, okay, what we need is a basic unit that is suited or fit for or apt for processes. And I thought for a long, long time, ah, there isn't one, because I was looking for something called mass seconds, you know, kilogram seconds. How do you multiply mass by time? I have the faintest idea. I don't think it makes sense. But are there, are there items out there whose units are that of mass multiplied by time? The dimensions are mt. The answer is, well, not quite, but there are things which are near to them because we know that mass is equivalent to energy, and that's where you get to the next thing. Mass is equivalent to energy because of Einstein's equation of mass-energy equivalence. So they are basically two different variants of the same thing. Um, I know that the dimensions of energy are given in terms of the dimension m, the, the, the things with superscripts are the dimensions, the physical dimensions of the quantities in question according to the SI system. I know that energy is given in terms of mass, so how could you define it the other way around? Well, answer, you know, you, you just choose to. You just decide. You know, if you've got a bunch of related uh, quantities, it's up to scientists to decide, to some extent, to decide what's fundamental and what's not. So let's suppose that we take energy as our as, as our stalking horse and see if we can find anything which is equivalent to energy times time. Because that, because processes have temporal parts, if you take a temporal slice of them, that should give you something like mass. It should give you energy. Well, energy times time is measured in joule seconds or it's given in joule seconds in the SI system. And there is a physical quantity which has that as its uh, units, it's called action. It's very, very underdeveloped, but it, it, it occurs in the so-called principle of least action, and you find it in Lagrangian mechanics and good stuff like that, which I don't understand. Action is, you might think, oh yeah, well fine, big deal, but here's the rub. Action is the dimension or quantity type of one of the fundamental constants of the cosmos, namely Planck's constant. Planck's constant is weird. It covers all sorts of unholy things that go on 
at the micro level, which make people shake their heads and wish they'd done English literature instead. But it comes in multiples of joule seconds. And there is the value of Planck's constant, 6.62, etc., times 10 to the minus 34 joule seconds. It's very small by comparison with the joule. Okay. So that's why you don't see, you don't see its effects, uh, obviously, at, at the macroscopic scale that we inhabit. But then if that's right, then you should be able to define kilograms in terms of mass by dividing it by, sorry, in terms of H by dividing it by seconds. And there is how much a kilogram would be if Planck's constant were the fundamental unit of action. Now, it's too small to be a practical one, but if it were for scientific reasons rather than practical reasons, Sorry, uh, that's, that's a very bad error on there. It should say 1.509, etc., times 10 to the 35 h per second, because I forgot to bring the, the exponent in. But so just multiply it by 10 followed by 35 zeros, and you get the right answer. But that, that's the answer. Now, you might think, oh, this is totally off the wall. How should a, you know, a, a wacko process metaphysician come in and tell scientists what to do with their with their measurement measuring units well firstly scientists get things wrong and i believe i know the si gets certain things wrong because i just finished a paper criticizing their definition of angle density and the mole which i think they are completely screwed up about but i now i used to think that they would they they were wrong about mass as well because they are proposing something that i thought until tuesday was wrong namely they're proposing to define mass in terms of the Planck constant. They're proposing to redefine the kilogram. The kilogram at present is the only fundamental constant defined by an actual individual. It's a lump of platinum iridium in a glass vacuum case sitting outside Paris at Sevres at the SI headquarters. The trouble with this lump of platinum iridium is it gains and loses mass for some reason that they're not quite sure about. It's not constant in mass. They measured its mass. So the kilogram's going like this. Right, because the body that defines it is going like this. Right, so much for Kripke saying that the kilogram necessarily has a mass of one kilogram. No, it doesn't. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. So how can we get round this? Answer: We divorce this unit of, of mass from something variable like a lump of metal in France. What we make it is, I mean, you could make it a lump of metal in Switzerland when it would be much less variable. But let's not be chauvinistic about this. Let's Let's do it in terms of a universal constant. There are very few universal constants better than H. C is a universal constant, velocity of light, but we already define the meter in terms of C. C. That's right. The C is defined in terms of the meter. It's one two hundred ninety-nine little thousandths something or other of the distance that light goes in a second. Okay, so it's not approximate anymore. It's fixed by fiat. So we can fix what a kilogram is by fiat, by saying it's so much, so many H's per second. And I thought that was a crazy idea. And I thought they should define mass by in terms of the mass of an actual body, like a carbon atom or something like that. But now I think that the new SI proposal, which is to do basically what I've said, to define the kilogram in terms of Planck's constant, is in fact right. Does that mean that I think that the guys in the SI are all, as it were, closet? process metaphysicians, of course not. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much.
that, 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 that made me sound convincing to the others. 